A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Gary Young doesn't always go for the obvious story. Take, for instance, his work on the US elections. In the run-up to the election in 2016, I went to Muncie, Indiana, which is not a swing, t- it's not a swing state, but my point really in going there was, I don't know what I'll find there. That's why I'm going. I'm Maeve McClanagan, and on this episode of The Tip-Off, a long-term project with heartbreaking consequences. As a journalist for The Guardian, Gary Young has reported from both the US and the UK. In 2016, he published a book called Another Day in the Death of America. And that was about all of the kids who'd been shot dead in one day in America and finding out who they were. It was a masterful piece. Brilliantly reported, quietly indignant and utterly gripping, read the reviews. But back in the UK, when he was talking about the book, the same question kept coming up. People would say, would you do something similar here? Now, thankfully, gun crime and mass shootings aren't such an issue in the UK. So initially, Gary batted away the idea. But the weeks passed, and he found himself still thinking about that question. And then an idea came to him. What about knife crime? Gary knew there were reports of teenagers stabbed to death across the UK, so he thought maybe he could try and profile each one. Okay, so we want to do knife crime. What's that actually, what is is the nature of that going to be as a series? Well, the first stage was trying to scope out just how big a project this would be. Gary knew he had to start at the beginning. You know, I called the library... Uh, the Guardian Library, and so could just find out for us how many teens and under were killed last year by knives, and they couldn't. Uh, so then I called around, and nobody could. And then I asked the data person. It turned out there were no, there were no facts. Trying to establish a framework for what the series would be was quite difficult. If the, if it's fifty, well, that's um, that's much more difficult than if it's ten. Immediately, it became apparent that this project was going to be different than most. Rather than working away at a story for weeks or months before publishing, Gary's idea was that they start at the beginning of the year and record the deaths of children and teenagers as and when they happen. There was a team of us, there were about five of us, and what we decided was 
we will um, we will count. We will count all of the children. The, these facts, it's not that they don't exist, but they're not publicly available. So for this year, we will make it publicly available. And then we will look at the kids themselves and the issues that their deaths throw up. Okay, so they had a plan. Start at the beginning of the year and add the details of a death whenever they saw one. But there were yet further complications. You see, here in the UK, we have strict contempt of court laws. That means that as soon as someone's charged with a crime, much of the detail of what's happened becomes unprintable. It's called subjudice, and that lasts until the jury is ruled and a person has been sentenced. It's a way of preserving innocence until proven guilty. But the court system can work terribly slowly. I mean, kids who were killed in... Uh... January and February, some of them, their cases are only coming through now. Now, if Gary and the team were going to keep a live recording throughout the year, the depth of their reporting was going to be significantly restricted by those rules. Break them, and they're being contempt of court. What's this going to look like when you can't write that much until a case is over? It gave them pause. But despite the restrictions, they decided there was still a lot they could reveal. Sooner or later with these series, you have to just decide that you're going to do it and that you will do what you can and that there is enough to do. And I was convinced that there was enough to do. And the reason I was convinced there was enough to do was because, by and large, it had been, it had been left to a, a kind of tabloid treatment which is all headline, all about death, then about sentencing, and here were themes, there were themes underpinning this, and I knew this from my book, there were themes underpinning this that can be given proper, rigorous, journalistic treatment about mental health or youth clubs or, um, or anything like that. I know from experience what pitching these kind of projects can be like. Often editors want to know what's the big reveal, what's the headline likely to be. But with long-term projects like this, all you have to offer them is a blank page. Well, there's always this challenge, isn't there, with, with journalism, and it's partly about limited resources, but it's partly about limited imagination, where people want to know the story before they commit to it. And actually, committing to the journey when you don't know the end of the story is arguably more the purpose of journalism. It's a journey of discovery. If you know the story before, first of all, that's going to shape how you write it because you know the answer, you think. And secondly, if you know the answer, why do it? Gary managed to persuade the Guardian's editors to take on the project. And he assembled a team to work with him, including reporter Damien Gale and data editor Keelan Barr. So the team got to work logging the cases where they saw them digging into casework and trying to work out how to get their hands on more data. But how do you find these cases? Well, the answer was fairly simple. Google, um, Google searches, uh, Google alerts. Evidently, they're not perfect because there are times when a colleague would catch one that I did not catch or, or, you know, or vice versa. And there was one that a reader alerted us to, uh, which means there's a chance that we didn't get them all. There is a chance. But there, there wasn't any other way to do it. 
So the team is hard at work, logging every case of a child or teenager who's stabbed to death in 2017. By March, they were already pulling in interesting findings. Many people have preconceived ideas about who the victims of knife crime might be, but the list that Gary had in front of him challenged some of those presumptions. By the time I'd written the first long raid on March 28th, I think there'd been about nine kids had been killed. Um, only two were black. Uh, two were female. Three were female. Three were five or under. No, seven years old or under. And one thing became clear. Knife crime, in inverted commas, is a construct. It's not a technical crime like stabbing or assault with a weapon. It's a set phrase we use to refer to something quite specific. And that became really evident when we did the first piece, which would have been the first quarter of the year. The term knife crime was only used in the national press when it was uh, black men in London. Now, I understand why the term wasn't used for the newly born baby who was stabbed to death or the seven-year-old or the five-year-old because my understanding of the construct didn't didn't encompass those but then there was you know a kid who was stabbed in northampton by eight other lads that was my concept of like that was my concept of knife crime but the national press never used it for that and so it you know these things are are very they are employed with significant prejudice and i don't mean racial prejudice i just mean uh there is a knowing understanding of what this stuff is. And when we got the data, we found out how little we actually knew. Language is powerful. Words have weight. The term knife crime was so loaded it took staring at the cold hard data to realise the real story was something much more complicated. That feeling of realisation wasn't new to Gary. He'd had his own preconceptions challenged before. One of the things I found out uh, doing my book about um, deaths uh, sh shooting deaths was that of all the fathers in America, African American fathers were the while they were the least likely to live with their children, they were the most likely to bathe them, do their homework with them, uh, read them stories, um, um, uh, eat with them, uh, talk to them about news, and I spent quite a lot of time trying to find something that would challenge this. It was a government survey. And, uh, and I just thought, well, why? I mean, you're a black father and you do all these things. And yet the understanding, the perception is so strong that you would rather look for a, cha a, 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 a fact that would undermine this than, um, than accept it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's leave Gary for a second. I want to tell you about someone else. Kamari Sarakuma Barnes was a skinny, music-loving 15-year-old. He loved to dance and was obsessed with a certain reggae singer. Kamari loved Bob Marley. He'd visited his mausoleum during a family holiday to Jamaica, sang Whalers songs at every opportunity and wore red, yellow and green beads around his neck, a tribute to his Rastafarian hero. In January last year, Kamari was leaving the high school gates when he saw another young teenager running towards him. Kamari ran, but the other boy caught up and stabbed him three times. Paramedics rushed to try and save him, but there was little they could do. Kamari died that evening. Back in the office, Gary was working away when... So his death popped up as a Google alert, and it was a you know front-page story of the Evening Standard. He knew this was a highly sensitive situation, but Gary also knew he needed to find out more if he was going to tell the stories of those whose lives were being lost to knife violence. And he wanted to tell Kamari's story. I go to the school the next day. So I arrived at the school and it was, you know, it's a, it's actually a bit of a media scrum. I mean, a local media scrum, but there's two reports from the Evening Standard and London South East, you know, there's a couple of television crews. Um, and the, the, it's the day after, so the kids are coming out, there's, there's um, flowers and, and they're crying. Um, and, uh, and I decided not to interview people. I mean, you wouldn't interview kids anyway, but other people. Gary wanted to be sensitive, but he also wanted to talk to Kamari's family when they were ready to talk. And actually, he was closer to the family than he first thought. And it turns out that I keep being one or two people removed from Kumari's family. So um, I have a godson who lives nearby who knew him. And yet even though I'm kind of quite, quite close, it's going to be another three months maybe before I finally make contact with uh, his family. And that's partly because you can't rush this and parents are grieving and you have to wait uh, until after the, uh, you, sh- you should wait until after the funeral. Um, uh, but even then, you need to go slowly. And really, and I went to everything. So I went to, um, there was a vigil. And I, I, and there was myself and a colleague, Damien Gale. There was the Nine Night, which is a, a, a ritual on the ninth night after a death. There's Jamaican ritual. Damien went to the Nine Night. 
A video clip from Kamari's funeral shows his coffin, adorned with a Jamaican flag and flowered wreaths, in a white carriage drawn by two white horses. Crowds of mourners throng the streets. Amongst them was Gary. It wasn't the first funeral he would attend that year. So I think we went to five or six funerals between us. Well, you don't report, per se. Oh, I don't. I don't ask people questions. Um, my notebook is as inconspicuous as possible. It's for description, um, for stories, that people will tell stories. It's for context. I'm not going to go up and... I mean, what would you say at a funeral? How do you feel? Well, I'm really gutted. You know, my kids has been killed. So... I wear black. Um, I don't pose as a mourner, but I go respectfully and um, sit in the back and um, take it in. In another twist of fate, a guy who'd seen Gary give a talk about his gun crime book spotted him at Kamari's funeral and offered to put him in touch with the parents. So a few weeks later, Gary found himself on the way to meet Paul, Kamari's father. We went to a cafe, um, and um, I employed pretty much the same technique, if you call it that, it sounds a bit like a shtick, but that I had used during my, um, doing my book on guns, which is to say to him, I know how Kumari died, I want to know how he lived, anything you tell me, I'm interested to know. And throughout this project, I certainly had the, the same... MO for absolutely everybody, which was, everything you tell me is off the record. I will come back to you with your quotes. If there's something you don't like, then it's not going in. And I think it's important to insist that a journalist needn't do that. But that in this particular case, I never wanted there to be any surprises. And if they told me, and I would say this to them, if you tell me, then I know. So even if I can't put it in, in your words, I still know it. And the knowledge is more important to me than catching you out. So if you know that nothing's going to go in in your name without you, uh, without your say-so, then my hope was that you can talk to me honestly. And then I know what I'm dealing with. Then I know what this is. Otherwise, I'm getting a... Sanitize is not quite the right word, but a curated, sculpted version of what this is. So there was, you know, there was a real anxiety about people thinking that Kumari was in a gang, that some way kids get blamed for their own death quite often. Once explaining all that, Gary and Paul sat across from each other in the cafe in central London, and the interview began. These are tough stories, tough interviews. How do you sit across from a recently bereaved parent and press them on details about their loss? There are moments and elements of those interviews, I don't think they're exploitative, but that they're hard, that to pursue, persist in saying, well, how, when was the last time you saw him? What do you think about that now? All of those things, you know you're asking someone a question that's going to make them cry. I think they're important questions to ask. The two men talked for a long time, and Gary began to get an idea of just who Kamari was. He heard about the music he liked, how loved he was by his friends. In fact, one of Kamari's best friends, a guy who raps under the name Trex, later made this song about the loss. 
I wish I could just have one more laugh And he would always let me know right from wrong Told me the beef was wrong Man, that's what a real brother do My little bro Kamari, someone I can't live without So many questions that I wanna ask Weeks after first meeting Kamari's father, Paul Gary made his way up the steps to the Old Bailey The court where Kamari's alleged killer would be tried The courtroom was tense On one side, Kamari's family huddled together And there on the other side a woman that Gary had never seen before. Who I assumed to be, and it was, the assailant's, um, the accused's mum. And the whole time I'm wondering, what's her story? She sits next to him the whole time. I've never made contact with her. I'm not quite sure what I would ask her anyway. Uh, and the whole time I'm with Komari's family. The trial continued until eventually it was time for the judgment to be handed down. And the boys found guilty. And just as I'm walking out, luckily, I had to go to the loo. Hooray for a weak bladder. So I'm coming out. Everybody's gone. And Komari's dad is waiting for something. And while he's there, the accused mum, the convicted's mum, who's just been saying goodbye to her kid, I think, comes out. And they bump into each other. And they throw their arms around each other. And, uh, and I'm like... My God, and that that brought a tear to my eye. And then um, when they let, I said to Paul, "What did you, what did you just say there?" And Paul said to her, "I'm sorry. I just wanted justice for my son." And she says, "I'm sorry. I'm just sorry." And uh, and I said that must have been quite weird. And he said, "I don't blame her. I'm bit, you know, I'm bigger than that." And and then the tears, <laughs> then the tears came back as well. It was then that Gary realised there was another side of the story he wanted to tell. One that's very rarely told. So after the trial was over, he found himself sitting down to draft an email. I emailed the barrister of the boy who had been convicted and asked if I could speak to his mum. At the sentencing, the court had heard how hard this woman had worked to try and get her son on the right track. She'd done parenting classes and she had written to her MP and said, help me save my son. Warning after warning after warning. At first, the barrister and the mother were resistant. What good could come of it, they asked. And I said, all I can tell you is that if it was my son, I would want people to know that he was more than that, that he was, he was more than just his crime, and that if there were circumstances that were mitigating... I would like people to know about that. Um, that I imagine, if it was your son, that you would feel shamed into silence. And actually, I think that there are lessons that can be learned. Eventually, she agreed to meet Gary in a coffee shop in central London. Uh, we had to move to three different places before we found a coffee shop that she felt that she, she would feel comfortable crying in. Gary agreed to protect her identity by calling her Shirley, and thus started a fraught and highly sensitive interview. At one point, I spoke about her son in the past tense, and she was like, he's still alive, which it's not that like I didn't know he was still alive, but somehow you do talk about people who've gone to prison in the past tense. Yeah, it was an immensely moving and very painful thing. And so that concluded that, story really i mean obviously it doesn't because she's still alive he's still alive kamara's parents are still living through it 
but I, I'm not sure there's a lot more that I can contribute after that. On the 19th of September, Gary published a story entitled The Boy Who Killed and the Mother Who Tried to Stop Him. They decided to call the boy who stabbed Kamari Sean. Gary explained that Sean was just 15 years old too. Shirley, his mum, had been desperately fearful about the way Sean was acting. She told social workers, if we don't do something, he's either going to end up dead or somebody's going to end up in a body bag. My son is totally responsible for his actions, Shirley told Gary, but the preventative measures that should have been in place were not there. It was a hugely powerful story, but it had been tricky to tell. From my point of view, there was some Mildred care in there. So once again, she saw all of the quotes beforehand. Um, there was big legal issues about the degree to which, because he was 15, what we were doing was identifying him. So I worked with the barrister, and then I worked with our legal team to make sure, and there was still some pushback from a couple of organizations about that, um, although we felt he was not identifiable. And the next day, of the day after it was out, I called her and said, you know, how are you? Or maybe I emailed her, but it was just like, just checking in. I did the same with Kumari's family, and I contacted Kumari's family before the piece came out about his killer, and said, I just just want to give you a heads up that this is happening. And um, because, yeah, once again, there should not be any surprises. Um, I would have completely understood if they'd been upset. Um, I'd have completely understood if they'd said, right, we're never talking to you again. And um, I would have still felt completely comfortable about my role in that. So Gary had powerful real-life stories, and that was a huge part of the project. But all the while, there was another element the team were desperately scrambling on. The data. Yeah, so that was our big scoop, really. Our big scoop was, uh, this was the data journalist, Keelan Barr, unrelenting pursuit of these figures. Here's Keelan. So my name is Keelan Barr, and I'm the editor of the data projects team at The Guardian. When Gary had first approached Keelan, he'd set her a challenge. Find the data on who and when people have been killed by a knife in the UK. Keelan knew exactly where to start. My process as a journalist to begin with was to go and talk to statisticians and criminologists and ask them where the data is held. And there's already aggregate statistics in the public domain. But what I wanted to do was get the more record level data because that's where the really interesting detail lies. Keelan made call after call and soon understood that it was police forces that would collect this type of info and it would then be passed on to the Home Office who recorded it in the Homicide Index. And the Homicide Index records every detail that a police force has categorised about every uh, homicide that's taken place in England and Wales back to 1967 and that's what I wanted. So once she knew how it was held, she put in freedom of information requests to all the police forces and the Home Office. But it wouldn't be so simple. Put the request in um, with the Home Office and then waited out the month. Nothing happened. Um, I put in a query. I got a response saying, you know, we're going to take a little bit longer to get back to you. 
Um, and then when I did get a response, it was initially a rejection. So she tried again, widening her questions to avoid asking for data that would identify anyone. And again, she waited months and months. And despite, you know, like constant conversations with um, people in their FOI office and email chains spanning weeks and months, there was just no response, at which point I decided to take it to the Information Commissioner's office. The Information Commissioner's Office has responsibility on ruling on disputes over the Freedom of Information Act, and they ruled in Keelan's favour. She had put in her first FOI in March, and now it was November, and finally the ICO said the Home Office had to release the data. And within, I'd say, 24 hours, I had the information. It was really exciting. It was really exciting. I was so pleased to get the information. What it showed was stark. I mean, first of all, they showed that this was the worst year, last year was the worst year for 10 years or something like that. But then in terms of how we understand knife crime, it showed that. London accounts for about half of all the knife crime deaths in Britain. So massively disproportionate to its size, and yet there's still a lot of kids outside of London. And our year actually conformed to that. There were 39 deaths, I think 19 were in London of the kids in London who were killed were overwhelmingly more likely to be blank in a way that cannot be accounted for by class. And in my first piece, I'd said, academics say, when you account for class, the racial dynamic goes away. Well, that just wasn't true from our findings. There are lots of white working class kids in London and they weren't being stabbed at anywhere near the same rate. Outside of London, uh, 90% of the kids who were stabbed are not black. And overall, 60% of the kids who are being stabbed are not black. And so it's one of those examples where you see racism being completely self-defeating. The project has had real impact. Questions have been asked in the House of Commons, citing the Guardian's figures, and in other places. Beyond the Blade was mentioned in the Scottish um, Parliament. We were called in to speak to the Solicitor General, the Attorney General. Yeah, it kind of, because finally, it wasn't just us that couldn't get the numbers, it means the MPs couldn't get the numbers, there were no numbers. So finally, there's some hard evidence for what we were talking about, which, um, you know, obviously no bad thing. Um, And it turns out that what we were talking about was kind of uninformed. The work has also won a slew of awards, including an Amnesty Media Award and a Press Award. And it couldn't come soon enough. This year, 2018, has already seen a horrifying spate of stabbing deaths. ...on the knife crime crisis which is killing four people a week. ...a police car in Croydon, South London, where there's a stabbing a day and a 10% rise in knife crime. Over the past couple of months, London has seen a huge spike in crime. Knowing the true scale of the horror won't bring victims like Kamari back, but at the very least this kind of reporting tells their stories. Kamari is not just a number in a hidden government data set. And unless we continue talking about how and why he and others died, the tragedies won't stop coming. Huge thanks to Trex for allowing us to play some of this song, Letter to Q. You can find a link to the YouTube video for the song in the show notes. 
Thanks too to Gary Young and Keelan Barr for talking us through their award-winning work. This has been the tip. I only wish you'd call my phone and tell me you're I away I feel incomplete, I can't eat, can't sleep They took my friend and my family, man I hate these streets And it all seems mad, we were together last week And now I'm screaming out, two dots, rest in peace All he wanted was peace, like young Bob Marley And man they took my G, this cold world so peak I thought it all was a dream, but bro come back to me I feel like I'm all alone, cause me and you was a team This is my letter to you my letter to Q, they ain't a word to describe the way I've been missing you. I ain't been through this much pain since I heard the bad news. And if you can hear my voice, I hope you know I love you. I had to put this in a song, cause I couldn't fit it all in one message. My bro Q dots, man, I hope you know you was a blessing. It should've never ever come this far for us to learn this lesson. And I'ma keep you in my heart, and I think about you every second. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>